Thank you, Karen. I was, somebody came up to me and said, why are you sitting on the back row? I said, that speaker. I must tell you that I am thoroughly and totally amazed what has happened here. As Karen mentioned, that is correct. I do lecture the length and breadth of uh, the world. I lecture on, in five continents. But what has happened here is unprecedented. To go to a community, to go to a geographical area which was more or less virgin territory for Judaica, and to see what has happened at every one of the lectures when hundreds and hundreds of people have come out and so many have come out again and again just to study, just to learn, just to quench a little bit of their, this, their thirst for knowledge and to see how exciting the study of Judaism is. In my own field, the study of Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls and Yerushalayim to show that there is so much there that, as I had said in my opening presentation, that you have not gotten. And I said it a bit more, I would say, coarsely, that you've been cheated, that so many of you have discontinued your Jewish education at bar and bat mitzvah age and never, never received the sophisticated, mature, updated presentation of the Bible. And for so many of you, you've gotten that now. Whether it be the Genesis and the Big Bang, the birth of monotheism, a stroll in the Garden of Eden, the concept of God, man, woman, nature, time, and their interrelationship, whether it be Jonah or the book of the most, I would say, charming and romantic book of all, the Song of Songs, whether it be Yerushalayim or whether it be Masada. It was my pleasure to be able to share all of these insights with you. And this, my friend, the ability to share is two-way. A teacher always wants to give, but you have to have a receptive audience. And here, within the past two years, is where the revolution has taken place. Look at the audience, and look at the audiences at every time when I had an opportunity to share some of this with you. This is unheard of in Orange County, and with all due credit uh, to the modesty and the humility of Ari Katz, he has rendered a veritable revolution. And I say a revolution that we hope will continue. And therefore, if I might, from my own perspective, share with you the intense desire to be partners with this program. Ari does not know that I was going to say this, so I'm taking it entirely on my own. It is very important, and I mean partners in every way. I mean partners also in coming to lectures. I mean partners in helping to sponsor. I mean partners in helping to be on the board, on the trustees, on everywhere and any way possible. Because, my friends, within two years, as Karen overheard that conversation, 
Within two years, I think, uh, two more years, you're going to say, hey, you know where all the action is? It's in Orange County. The happenings are in Orange County. And it already happened this year when uh, they were aware, Sinai Temple was aware in Wilshire Boulevard that I'd be here. They wanted to borrow me from Orange County. And the JCC in San Diego wanted to borrow for the Finally, Orange County is on the giving side, not merely the receiving side. But that can only continue if you totally support in every way the program. And I also can tell you that uh, Ari has scheduled for the next several years the scholars and residents who will be coming. And next year you have a fabulous person who will be here who will, so to speak, take the next step forward, go into Second Temple times. And what I just started to hint at, at the major presentation I gave the other night on the Dead Sea Scrolls, he will be able to amplify and to elaborate within the Second Temple Judaisms, as I hope you learned from my presentation. So all of that is an encouraging sign of what's happening here, and you are the people that can make this possible. So join in the joint effort and be together with us. This evening, as my final presentation, I want to direct my remarks to the Book of Esther. And what I've done up until now, if you realize, except for a, a lecture on the Dead Sea Scrolls, is to take uh, themes and topics which you thought you knew you knew. And I try by the end of 45 minutes, an hour, or <laughs> three and a half hours, uh, to show you how much you don't know about what you thought you knew you knew. And that the Book of Esther, who doesn't know the Book of Esther? Well, in 45 minutes you're going to see that you didn't know the Book of Esther. But why don't you know? You'll say you hear it every year. The problem is twofold. First, you never studied it independently, but second, when they are reading it, everybody in the shul is groggering away. <laughs> you never really get to hear what's written in the book of Esther. And I want to share something with you this evening that you've never heard before, and I think most of the things will take you by surprise. By the way, there are a few people here in the audience who did hear a presentation that I gave to a very, very um, small group, an advanced group. So for that group who has heard, I promise to give you new material as well. Uh, well, let's start. The book of Esther is, I would say, a, an embroidered literary Persian carpet made up of many threads, and today we call the Book of Esther a historical novel. But both sides of the coin are correct. There is a nucleus of history, and about this nucleus, this uh, core material, a brilliant writer has drawn a multicolored novel. The book of Esther, I think, contains three main underpinnings. The first one 
is king and kingship, royalty. The second is drinking and imbibing and intoxication. And the third one, women. If I go to the first one, which is royalty, the Hebrew root mem lamid kaf appears in the book 169 times. So you see how exciting scholarship is. <laughs> what does one do late at night? He counts verses, he counts roots, and um, that's the way we occupy ourselves. But if I tell you that in the book of Esther there are only 190 verses and you hear that within 190 verses this root appears 169 times, you realize that this is the person who takes center stage, the king. And this starts the paradox of the book. Because the king, Ahasuerus, who is center stage, does absolutely nothing on his own, on his own initiative. He is a marionetta, with the hands of the threads being pulled by his wives, by his consorts, by his prime ministers, by his advisors, nothing on his own. He is a do-nothing, rien de rien, he's a do-nothing king. <laughs> and yet he's center stage and we're going to get back to him shortly. The second major motif is wine and drinking, or the Hebrew word mishteh. If you open a concordance, and a concordance is a book that lists every time every word appears, you will find that that word mishteh, drinking, banqueting, imbibing, appears in the book of Esther almost half the amount of times of all the drinking in the entire Bible. Can you imagine that? Half of the drinking in the Bible appears in this 190 verse, which means that if the Bible itself is flowing with milk and honey, this is flowing with schnapps and vodka. <laughs> and you'll learn as we continue that every major decision in the book is made when the king is partially, if not entirely, tipsy, <laughs> if not turvy. Now, the third is women, and Karen said if he can do the wiles of women in 45 minutes, all the more power. Karen, it's going to take me more than 45. <laughs> but we will get back to the women a bit later on when I start this evening's lecture. <laughs> now, if you realize that the book of Esther deals with royalty, drinking, and sex, I'm sure when you go home tonight, nobody would suspect that you went to hear a lecture on the Bible. But if that's what's in the book, what's not in the book? And this is even more amazing. I'm sure that many of you know that the name of God does not appear in the entire book of Esther. And you ask yourself, my God, how can a book of the Bible contain no mention of God? 
But there's more no mentionings. Because not only is God not mentioned in the Bible, but we don't hear any mention in the main part whatsoever of Jerusalem, of Sinai, of commandments, of laws, of praying. Can you imagine? There's no praying going on in the book. When Esther is about to risk her life, she turns to her handmaidens and she says, Tzumu life, fast for me. She doesn't say pray for, there's no prayers. Now, if there's no prayers, what then? What then is there? No God, no Jerusalem, no Sinai, no covenant, and the entire historiosophic cyclical nature of the Bible, which says if there's an enemy that arises, that's because the people have sinned. Who has sinned in Shushan? There's no sin mentioned that would bring forth a purported genocide. And then the continuation, and if the people repent, God will send a savior. Where is their repentance in the book? There's no repentance because there's no sin. And a savior arises without this, as I said, cyclical nature. So if what you have is so different from every other book, and that which you don't have distinguishes it from every other book in the Bible, you can imagine that the rabbis had a great deal of difficulty getting the book of Esther into the Bible. And you'll be amazed to hear that there was a bait that was carried on for decades. Should we or shouldn't we put the book of Esther into the Bible? And I must tell you that the rabbis themselves realized the potential danger of the book. Because in one, in the tractate, Masechet Megillah on Daf Shev, on page seven of the tractate of the Babylonian Talmud of Megillah, it says that Esther approaches the rabbis and she says to them, Kivauni ledorot, I want you to put me into the canon in perpetuity. And the rabbis say, Esther, if we put you into the Bible, you're going to cause us trouble. And then Esther outwits them, as we shall see how she outwitted the gentleman in the Bible itself. She outwits the gentleman of the rabbis by saying, if you don't write me in Hebrew, I want you to know that I'm already written in Persian. I'm in the libraries, Isfahan, Shiraz, and Tehran. So write me also. What was the problem here? But before we analyze the problem, I want you to realize that this was a debate going on. Should she be put into the Bible or not? Thank God the rabbis finally decided to put the book of Esther in. And why ultimately they did, did they do that? I think because it was a beautiful sign of the uh, magnanimity of the rabbis, of their open hearts, the fact that one day a year the Jews could celebrate. One day a year they were victorious. One day a year they could be happy. Why not memorialize that victory in the book of Esther? But it was difficult getting in. And as I promised those who came to the Dead Sea Scroll lecture, 
I told you there that every book of the Bible is represented, is represented at Qumran except the book of Esther. And there's two ways to understand that. Either it's just a chance that we have not yet found the book, or it may very well be that that super orthodox sect that seceded from Jerusalem may have voted against Esther in their Bible. And there's a very good chance that Esther was not in the Bible of those people at Qumran because it is a totally secular book. The Jews won in war without any mention of God. That doesn't happen any other place in the Bible. You know, for those of you who heard my lecture on the Song of Songs and Erotica Judaica, know that there's no mention of God in the book of Song of Songs. But at least in the book of Esther, there's a nationalistic motive. There is a genocide that is going to take place against the Jews. So therefore, we have a national, nationalistic uh, tenor to the book, and it gets in. But it does not mention that God is fighting for the Jews, as it does in every other book of the Bible that deals with warfare. So my friends, point number one. The book, with all of its anomalies, gets in, and I say, thank God it did get into our canon. Now, what I'd like to do is to share several things with you uh, which are going to take you by total surprise. Three very serious notes about the book of Esther. Number one, you should know that the book of Esther has caused us Jews more problems in the history of our people than all of the books of the Bible put together. Can you imagine such a delightful, delectable, delicious tale causing us so much problems? And why? It was already with the purposeful insight of the rabbis realized. They say, Esther, if we put you in, you're going to cause us problems. Why? You know why? Because we won. And where in the ancient world was it ever heard that Jews win in battle? Esther, you're going to cause us problems. And the problem started with Luther. Luther said, in one of his writings, I hope that the, I would wish that these two books, and he's referring to Esther and the book of Maccabees, and you know what happened in the book of Maccabees, Hanukkah, I wish these two books were never written because we won. And then, my friends, it goes on and on. The, in the diatribes, in the debates that take place in the Middle Ages against the Jews, the auto de fe's, the expulsions, the massacres, Esther is used against us. I'll give you just some reasons. First, they said, why, if you read towards the end of the book, in chapter 9, why did Esther request a second day for battle? Why did she request a second day? Because the battle was still going on. Why? And then they call her, and I'm talking now about biblical scholars, not about theologians, not about ministers and pastors and priests, but by biblical scholars. And they said she is a blood 
sucking leech, an vindictive, revengeful, avengeful woman because she wants a second day of our massacre. They're attacking us. Second, at the finale, when, and we'll get to that when I begin this evening's lecture, <laughs> uh, at the finale, when Haman is trying to save his life, they said, why didn't Esther plead for the life of Haman? Not why did Haman want to kill us, but why didn't she come out in his defense? Again, the revengeful vixen of a woman, Esther. Over and over again, and to such an extent, the person wrote uh, at the beginning of the last century, one of the most learned, learned commentaries on the book of Esther, and he says in the commentary, a Britisher, he says, where Mordechai, or uh, where a Jew to become prime minister of England, as Mordechai became prime minister of Persia, this would not be a day of rejoicing for us English. And then in a leading German commentary, it says, when it lists the number of casualties of those who attacked us, he writes, how like the Juden to write the painless statistic, the tortuous statistics of how many they killed. That's in scholarly commentaries. Esther you're going to cause us a lot of trouble. How the rabbis realize that is amazing. So I want you to know that because that's not the happy part of this tale of Esther. And I want to tell you something else. I think that Esther, the book of Esther in a nutshell, is the history of our people, which means that fortunately at that time in Persia, at the time of Ahasuerus, and by the way, we know who Ahasuerus was. His name is known, and we have his historical documentation by the great Greek historian called Herodotus. Xerxes was the king of Persia from 486 to 465 before the Common Era. And the way in which he's depicted by these outside Greek sources is exactly the way he appears in our book. Well, he, over and over again, is depicted as a very arbitrary monarch, which he was. But to get back to what I was just saying to you, the fact that Mordechai and Esther ultimately got the ear of Ahasuerus, Xerxes, saved the Jewish community the story of our lives. If we had the right man or the right woman at the right place at the right time, that Jewish community was saved and was not persecuted or was not destroyed. There was a great, great Jewish scholar and counselor by the name of Barbanel who tried the hardest to stop Ferdinand and Isabella in 1492 from expelling the Jews, and he was unsuccessful. If the right person gets the right ear and it's an opportune moment, the Jewish community is saved. If not, it's a foregone conclusion that it will be disastrous. 
And my friends, till today, that is our story. Because who, and I want just for you to realize how significant it is, who are the Esther and Mordechai's of today? It's APAC. It's the Jewish lobby in Washington to have the right people at the right place in order to help to save your community or your state or your nation. And that is what was happening in the book of Esther. But a third thing I want to share with you, and this third thing is something which I know is going to be very, very hard to take, especially for the women. All I ask, first of all, I had asked Ari to have the back doors locked, <laughs> so you can't get out. Uh, so I just ask you, uh, though it's going to be some harsh things I'm going to share, please stay to the end because there's going to be a surprise after the surprise, but before the reception. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about darling Esther, our heroine, and that we're now going to the third underpinning. We discussed the king a bit, wine a bit, now we'll talk about women a lot. First of all, Esther is going to show up as an assimilated, uncaring, apathetic Jewess. In fact, I don't even think I should add the word Jewess. Because how does she appear, first of all, by name? What is the name of our heroine throughout the entire book? It's Esther and not Hadassah. And Esther, we know, is her Goyesha name. It is taken from the femme fatale female goddess of Ishtar. And as she will turn out to be in similar vein. But she goes by Esther and not by Hadassah. Let's take this a little further. We hear that Esther joins a beauty pageant. My friends, where in the ancient world, up until modern times, let's forget a second about Bess Meyerson, <laughs> but up until modern times, where did you ever hear of a good Jewish kosher girl joining a Ms. Universe context? <laughs> I mean, it's unheard of, totally unheard of. Let's go further. It's going to get worse, I'll tell you. Take out the earplugs or put them in. Third, Esther gets selected on the Miss Universe contest, and she's at court. Obviously, she's eating at court. What is she eating at court? So you'll say, well, well, thou dost protest too much. No, because anytime the author wants to say that the hero, hero or heroine was very, very pedantic and punctilious about his dietary laws, it mentions it. Open up the first chapter of Daniel, and you'll see that when Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, get taken to the Babylonian court of Nebuchadnezzar, they become vegetarians. Vegetarians. And it says that in the text. And in this book that was written right after the Bible was concluded, a Jewish book, which unfortunately didn't make the Bible, 
It's called the book of Judith. You should read it sometimes. It's a wonderful book about a very, very beautiful young widow who, when her village is surrounded by the Greek forces, same time of the Maccabees, the same type of, a, um, of, the, of the Greeks and the story of the Maccabees, and the village is about to surrender, she decides in a tremendous demonstration of valor that she's going to save her, her, uh, her populace, her people. And how's she going to do it? Simply by getting into the enemy camp and killing the commander-in-chief. How do you do it? She was very beautiful, and she put on her most diaphanous gown. I mean, I hope you see through this plot. <laughs> her most diaphanous gown and she comes down the hill with a knapsack on her back. And you know what's in the knapsack? Preserves with K and U stamped on them. <laughs> she gets to the commander-in-chief in the enemy camp, and he realizes if she's coming, and there has this tremendous seduction scene, which is preceded by a banquet. And he puts out all of the royal dainties and he says, Yehudit, what would you like? And she requests a can opener. <laughs> it was important for her. Seduction, yes, seduction, no, I'm kosher. <laughs> what does the author say in the book of Esther? Nothing. Absolutely not. Why? Because it means Esther ate all of the royal chazarai. <laughs> she ate everything. Didn't bother her because she had no attachment whatsoever or identification. It's going to get worse. The genocide order goes out and her uncle, Mordechai, goes to the center a plaza in Shushan rips his clothes, he's fasting, and it's, uh, he's in ashes and sackcloth. They tell Esther, your uncle is in the major plots of plotting. And what now? Her uncle is in clothing which are rented. Uh, rented, not tired, but <laughs> re rented clothing. Rented clothing, and the that means it's an unbelievable disaster. And look at what the read the book wants. How does she react? She says, "Send him another pair of clothing, <laughs> my friends." And this is the woman that you dress up your girls to look like. Shame. Shame. You want to have a wonderful woman? Then dress them up as Vashti. Vashti. Vashti is the only one who was interested in her own honor. When the king says, I want you to come to the feast, she doesn't show up. Oh, you all think you know why. By the way, would someone remember where I start this excursus? <laughs> right? I'm in the center of Plotzing. 
Vashti refuses to go. And everybody thinks, why? Because she was asked to appear in the queen's new clothing. Right? In the clothing of the day in which she was born. Which, of course, is not correct. And now we know, because we know from archaeological discoveries of, lay, of, uh, of recent documents, that according to Persian law, a Persian custom, when the gentlemen dined together, they dined together with their wives. But at the end, at the reception, <laughs> the wives were asked to leave. And the, um, let's say it nicely, the courtesans came in. When Ahasuerus invites Vashti, it's at the drinking time, which means if Vashti appears, she is belittling herself. She is not dignifying herself because any woman who wanted to respect her own dignity would not show up at that time. Vashti refuses. She's the only one that has guts and valor. I am not belittling myself. This Purim we're going to see. Who are you going to dress your girls up? <laughs> Let's continue. Send them another set of clothing. That is what she's worried about. Now let's get to the pièce de résistance. Mordechai confronts her. And he says to her, Esther, who knows, maybe it's for this period of time that you were selected, that you are elected, that you are in the court. Go to save your people. And what does she say? It's been 30 days I haven't been called to the king's bedside. And if you show yourself without being called, it's off with your head. No reception, decapitation. And I can't, this is a heroine? Go and save your people? Uh, but, 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 and she's stammering and stuttering and says she can't go. This is Esther. But you don't read the book. It's not a proud picture. And then he blackmails her. And he says, Esther, if you do not go, I am going to squeal on you. And you and your people will be killed. Then comes the switch. And with the switch, I'm going to begin this evening's lecture. <laughs> I told you to stay, women, and the fact that you stood, now you're going to get your recompense. <laughs> Esther is willing to go. Okay, she was convinced in not a very, very, I would say, morally and ethically way, but she's convinced. Now you have to put yourselves in the place of Esther in order to understand what's happening. Esther has a major problem. And the problem is that she has to deal with two men. That's her problem. Two men. One man is a total unadulterated nincompoop. And the other one is the I would say, incarnation of an SOB. Ahasuerus, the jerk. And Haman, the bastard. Now, in order for me to continue this lecture, every woman has to take a vote. The lecture ends if you don't take a vote. And I want you to vote. 
Whom do you think it's more difficult to deal with? A jerk or a bastard? If you don't vote, you got to go out. Okay? How many vote for the jerk? First of all, for all of those who are voting for the jerk, my <laughs> consolations. <laughs> and how many vote for the bastard? Okay, that's pretty close, I must tell you. It's almost 50-50. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. The jerks win. Why? You see, if you have to deal with a wicked person, then Esther can very easily say, anything you can do, I can do wickeder. You can, and every woman here knows how to out-wicked her husband. <laughs> Everybody knows. In fact, 50% of you voted for her. <laughs> but... What is the harder thing to do is to deal with someone who is capricious, arbitrary, and you don't know what he is going to do every moment. You have no objective standard. With the SOB, you know, but not with the king. Example, the king signed the genocide order for a holocaust against the Jewish people without knowing the identity of the people whose slaughter he decreed. Haman pushed the paper, he signed it, didn't even ask against whom. How can you deal? Now, I want you to realize that Esther's problem was not Haman, it was Ahasuerus. Now begins the wiles of women. How did she do it? And I want to tell you something, women, it works. <laughs> Take out your pens and papers. This is a rare opportunity of do-it-yourself, self-help. What did she do? Follow it carefully. Esther risks her life, goes into the king. He stretches out the scepter. That means she is persona grata. And he says to her, Esther, ma she'elatehu, ma bakashatehu, what do you want, my dear? Half the kingdom is yours. What does Esther say in probably the simplest Hebrew sentence in the entire Bible? She says, I want you and Haman to come to a happy hour, which I'm throwing for him today. That's a simple Hebrew. Yavo, Hamelech, the Haman, to have a drink, which I am preparing today. Hayom. But that's odd. And the king probably asked himself, Esther is inviting me and Haman to come and have a drink. I'm always drinking. <laughs> Oddity number two. She asked me to come today. You don't invite a king from this afternoon to this afternoon. Maybe I'm booked. <laughs> Number three. Whom does she invite? 
this big feast is going to be altogether only three people. At the beginning of the book of Esther, when Ahasuerus threw a banquet, he invited the entire population. Three people isn't even a family picnic. <laughs> she risks her life to invite me to have a drink, a drink today with only three people all together. And here comes the most odd thing of all in his name, in his mind. She said, let the king and Haman, my friends, if you're throwing a party, a bar mitzvah, a wedding, a simcha, and you want to invite the governor, and you want to invite the mayor, then you'll send them independent invitations. You will not say, let the governor and the rabbi. You don't do that. It's not protocol. When she said, let Haman, let the king and Haman come, she has elevated Haman to the same rank as king. What does that mean? She has very, very cleverly put into the king's mind the seeds of jealousy. She's inviting me and putting Haman on the same level seeds of jealousy. Now watch how they'll sprout. They come a couple hours later and the king, who was a bit suspicious by now, says, what do you want, Esther? Up until half the kingdom it's yours. And Esther then repeats the same invitation word for word, except changes one word. If in the first invitation she says, I want Haman, I want the king and Haman to come to a banquet which I am preparing low, the Hebrew word low, for him. The king may say, well, maybe she slipped. She still said the singular for him. That's for me. In the second invitation, she says, I want the king and Haman to come and have a drink with me tomorrow because it's the next day for a little party that I am preparing for them. It's totally clear. It's totally clear for them. It's on equal par. Now, there is a coup at foot. The king obviously realizes that when he comes on the next day, it's going to be his last supper. <laughs> Esther and Haman, Haman and Esther, I know what I've been doing, the king says, the last 30 nights, but where has Esther been? <laughs> now she raises him to the top level? Along with me, there's a plot afoot. And I want to tell you something, just as a footnote, King Ahasuerus, we know from historical documentation, was assassinated at court by a coup. It did take place. And there's no reason why not to think this was in his mind. So what happens? The king then starts saying, saying to himself, it's clear, Esther, Haman, Haman, Esther, Esther, Haman, Haman, Esther. You know what the next line is? That night, the king couldn't sleep. Guess why? <laughs> Excursus number two. You remind me again. Can't sleep. At this time, what is Haman doing? Haman is totally unaware of this plot. This brilliant scenario, Haman is out erecting a gallows to string up Mordechai. 
Why? Because Mordechai hasn't bowed down. And by the way, we know from Persian custom, all of these addenda are for those who heard the lecture, that that was the law of the day. That when two Persians met in the street, if they were of equal status, they greeted one another with what we would call a Russian hug. But if one was of a lower status, that one had to genuflect. That one had to bow. And now, since Haman was prime minister, everyone was of a lower status. And Mordechai refused to bow. You refuse to bow, I am going to get you and your entire people. Here, king, sign with anonymous name, signs the decree. He's about to hang up, hang a string up. Mordechai. And the text says that he erects a gallows, Hamishim Amah. 50, and then there's the word Amah. Now, in Elizabethan King Jamesian English, an Amah, which is a cubit, was translated as E L L. He erects a gallows 50 L's high. And I want to tell you, this is one of the cleverest pieces of humor in the entire Bible and you don't realize because 50 L's is seven stories. <laughs> seven stories high. This is a serious gallows. <laughs> this is real gallow humor. Now, 50 L's, so I got to have an excursus and tell you a story that happened to me. And all the stories that you know, for those of you, and there's one person here who's now on her 14th lecture, Rosalie and uh, Nira. So I told them after they get 10 lectures, they get a free coffee. <laughs> I don't know what happens at 14, but what now happened is this. Once I was uh, invited to be scholar in residence for a Purim weekend right over the border of Chicago in Indiana. It's called Hammond, Indiana. And the rabbi came to me and he said, Shalom, I want to tell you something. Uh, Saturday night, we're reading the Megillah, but we read it only for the kids and it's going to take three and a half hours. Go back to Chicago where I was teaching and uh, you can hear it in Chicago. So I got on the train to go back to Chicago, but what does the creator of the universe do? It starts to snow. And the snow is so intense, as we know what happened now just now in Chicago, that the, a car gets stuck on the train tracks and the train can't go. I said, after that incident, I would believe anything that they write in the Talmud. <laughs> what happens if you're going back to hear the Megillah and you're on a train? and a car gets stuck on the train track, and you don't have a, I believe everything now. It could happen. I get back, I never will be able to get back to the northern, to the Skokie and Highland Park and Deerfield and Glencoe. And I was staying right near the water tower on Michigan Avenue, and I remembered that there was a gentleman who had in his private apartment a little shul. I ran over, and just as I ran over, I see he's about to start. There are eight people in his congregation. Three men, three women, and two children. But the rabbi is a rabbi, and he's going to explain every chapter to make it clear so you'll understand what's happening. And when he gets to chapter 6, when it says the king can't sleep, 
and Haman is erecting a gallows. He says, and Haman erected a gallows 50 L's high. He's explaining. 50 L's high. So the woman sitting next to me gives me a... And she says, what the L is he talking about? <laughs> Fifty L's, why not fifty M and M's? I mean <laughs> What happens now? He is erecting a gallows fifty L's high and he runs in to tell the king. Now the king, you remember, can't sleep because yeah, Amen Esther, Esther, Amen Esther, Amen. And then all of a sudden he hears someone say, Amen, every woman says a cardiac arrest. Thank you. <laughs> So, he confronts Haman, knowing, so to speak, what Haman has in mind, which Haman never had in mind because he doesn't know what the king is thinking. And the king says to Haman, Haman, what should the king do for the man that the king wants to honor the most? Now you realize, the king is suspecting him. Haman is totally naive. So what does Haman say? If you want to honor somebody, then give him the king's clothing, the king's crown, and the king's horse. What does the king hear? He wants my clothing. He wants my crown. He wants my horse. He already has my wife. <laughs> you! Take Mordechai and lead him around the city. Did you ever ask yourselves, why would the king so demean his prime minister by doing such a servile task unless it was in his head? And you realize, my friends, that the king only has one prime minister. How many wives? You remember, 127 gathered together. He could get rid of Esther. Miss Pakistan is waiting. <laughs> and what about Miss Urdudu? <laughs> they're all, <laughs> they're all there. He doesn't need, and yet, and yet he's willing to so humiliate his prime minister. Why? Because it was already in his head that there is some liaison, there is some romantic relationship of the two against him. Now comes the third happy hour. They get together. The king is scared stiff because the king knows that there is a palace revolution afoot. The king knows that Haman and Esther are doing something behind his back. So the king then, and he is totally drunk at this time. How do I know the Hebrew is so clear? He says, Ma <laughs> for those who know Hebrew, he is totally, totally tipsy, and he's scared stiff, and he says, Esther, what do you want? And then Esther stands up and says, I want my life and the life of my people, because this SOB, Haman HaRasha, is out to kill us. Can you imagine the king? The king is totally discombobulated. 
He thought that they were getting together because it was a plot of Esther and Haman against him. Now he hears that the plot is Haman against his queen. Wow, if when sober he's confused, look what happened now. And the text says that he goes out to the veranda to breathe some fresh air and Haman realizes that this is going to be the last moment of his life unless. So he runs over to Esther and Esther is supping and you've all seen these pictures. You probably have seen the Greek and Roman pictures but it's the same with the Persians. You sup on a divan, right, on a sofa. She's sitting there drinking uh, lying down on a sofa and the text says that Haman runs over to her, bows down and falls right down and just as he falls down the king enters and he gets a rare rear view <laughs> and he says, and he says, do you intend to, my queen? Do you intend, my queen, while I'm here? Where in the world, and by the way, it is a four-letter word, and it's only used once, and I'm sure that 90% of you are going to run home and open to the chapter to see what he said. Where in the world would, why in the world would the king think of such a thing that Haman is attempting with his wife, unless it was here. And Esther very artfully and very shrewdly and very craftily and very ingeniously watered those seeds until it sprouted and then the denouement. And then it was clear. There was no choice between Esther and Haman who he would prefer. He then tells them to take out Haman and the king utters his last word which is so typical of the king. He says one word, and the one word in Hebrew is Tulu. <laughs> Seriously, it's Tulu. It's Tilauhu. It means string them up. Can you imagine? String them up. Tulu. It's exact. It's so great humor there, and you don't realize it. So, my friends, what you see here is a magnificent, artful narration of how Esther, who was confronted with a, with a job, a task that's unbelievable. There's only one prime minister and there are 126 other waiting in the antechamber. How could she outwit Ahasuerus? Because that was, he was her problem. So when now, you see, we study the book of Esther, we study it from so many different angles and I haven't told you half of the other angles. Archaeologically, we know about the book of Esther, many, many, much, much data, maybe it'll come out in questions. But the book of Esther is an unbelievable narrative which shows the power of a woman to outwit two men, but in doing so, she was ultimately responsible for getting that book into the Bible. Thank you.
please, if there are any questions, yes, sir. Maybe, why don't you stop with the first word? <laughs> ah, yes, where are you from, sir? Wow. <laughs> Drinks are on the house. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, my question is number one, uh, if, if this is so artfully written, what would be the motive of the author to have as the key figure, the figure that saves the day, a woman as opposed to the devout Mordecai? And two, why didn't Judas make it into the Okay, the second one is simpler to answer, and that is because by that time, the biblical canon of the 24 books had already been signed, sealed, and almost delivered. And any book that was written afterwards, Jewish book, Jewish literature, was consigned to what we call the Apocrypha. And uh, the greatest paradox, I think, in our history was that the Apocrypha was preserved by the Christian church. They preserved it, uh, and uh, it's because of them uh, that um, we still have this literature. Uh, even the book of the Maccabees. All of this didn't get into the Bible. It was too late. In reference to the first question, why a woman? Uh, that's very difficult to know, except you have to realize that um, uh, Mordechai, of course, is always behind her and backing her and supporting her. But... There is a major additional message to the book which I didn't even touch upon. And that is, the book of Esther was written outside of Israel. It was written in Persia. And the additional message is to show, and I, th I think this will make all the people here very comfortable, that a Jew could attain great honor and great dignity outside of Israel as long as he was defending his people. And I think that that message that is there uh, is so significant for us today. Because all who do live outside of Israel, who do have care and concern for the people of Israel, and are attached, so there is no here belittling or negation of the diaspora. It's saying, as long as you are willing to help your people, male and female, then that is of great importance. And therefore, you dress like them, you dine with them, you wine with them, but you have the Jewish people at your heart, and you're ready to risk your lives or whatever in order to be with them. And here, it would be understandable if it were just a male figure. But the author wanted to show that the women have just as much concern and have just as much an obligation. Yes, sir. You stated in the beginning of your talk that sin is not mentioned in the book of Esther. Yes. I would like you to comment uh, on the belief uh, that some rabbis believe that the Holocaust, the genocide almost took place because during that six-month uh, festivity of Akashverosh, he invited many of the Jews who uh, participated in his banquet and ate grapes. And some, I, I'd like your thoughts 
Um, what you say has a literary uh, foundation. The rabbis, in their attempt to understand why uh, destruction did take place, the rabbis now, not the Holocaust of modern times, uh, said that the Jewish community, they did say that. It's in uh, two places. It's in the uh, Talmud of Megillah, and it's also in the Midrash of Esther Rabbah in which they said that since everybody was invited for the, um, for the feast, which he threw, all of the Jews, uh, all of the population, which included Jews, and therefore they, since they partook of it, uh, the punishment took place. That is the way the rabbis, in one instance, attempted to rationalize what did happen. And that's very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. Uh, that they even thought in that direction because, of course, we can in no way, matter, or form accept such a reasoning. That is a total defamation of God's name. It means that you are placing yourself in the seat of God knowing why disasters happened in history. That is overweening pride and total chutzpah. And therefore, no one should ever, ever say, I know why the tragedy occurred, because we don't know. Yes. <laughs> Howie, was that your Howard? Yes, please. Howard, that is an extremely learned question, uh, the base of which may not be known to everybody, so let me answer it uh, very, very uh, quickly, briefly. Uh, number one, since I mentioned, I'm going to backtrack, since I mentioned to you that Ahasuerus lived, a real live king, 486 to 465, and since this is exactly the same time, more or less, uh, that Ezra and Nehemiah are functioning back building the second temple, your basic premise is totally correct, okay? Now, that people tried to stop the temple from being built, these were not Persians, but these were the group of Jews that the Jews didn't want to allow in, they were the Samaritans. The Jews who returned from the exile in Babylon considered themselves the real genuine, and those who lived and intermarried in Israel at that time, they considered assimilated. So when these came and said, can we join you in building? They said, no. And then these Samaritans wrote to the Persian government and saying, the Jews are trying to start a revolt against you, which was 
totally incorrect and it was totally false. Now, that was what was happening. Why is it not mentioned? Because the Ezra and Nehemiah, the people who wrote that book, knew not what's anything whatsoever of what was happening back in Persia. Just like the Jews in Persia would not know what's happening back in Israel. In other words, these are independent tales written some about the same time, but from a whole different perspective and a whole different milieu. So one did not know of the other, and there was no connection between the two. But what you said uh, for contemporaneity, that is correct. 